0: Welcome to Room Now's ACR 2023 Rheumatology Roundup, an annual event for what I think already is maybe 16, 17, 23 years, something like that. I think we
1: started right here in San Diego, didn't we? I think so,
0: yeah. So Room Roundup, for those of you who weren't there almost 20 years ago, is where we get together at the end of the meeting and present what we think were the highlights of ACR convergence. We just got back from San Diego I'm Jack Cush with room now, and I'm joined by Artie Kavanaugh from right here in San Diego. So, again, we have one day of rest. We're um, post-conference. Sounds like it's a diagnosis. uh, And uh, we've had time to recollect on what we think are the important studies from the meeting. In this roundup review, we'll be discussing abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Um, These abstracts were chosen by us. Um, Without any influence from the influencers, the TikTokers, the social truthers, uh, again, the content is really based on what we thought was interesting, maybe innovative, and may impact your clinical practice. Um, So again, please, this is for your private use reproduction of this award-winning podcast and uh, broadcast is not advised unless you'd like a visit from my cousin Vinny, his cousin Carmine, and Frankie two knows you don't want to know already start us off all
1: right well the for those of you who were there you know the the soul of the meeting was brought back and that was actual posters with actual people actually standing in front of them that's always the highlight of the meeting you get to talk to colleagues get to talk to people you don't know and ask them to explain their research and uh, we all get uh, better educated by being around each other the media itself seemed good maybe not quite as crowded as it had been in the past but i think we're still getting getting back after COVID had really thrown everybody a monkey wrench, so it's good to see things at least heading back to normal. Uh, The poster that I picked, speaking of posters, and the first abstract that I picked was number 25, and this is genetic variants in cannabinoid receptor 2 or associated with perceived effectiveness of cannabis in treating RA-related pain. Uh, Now, I picked this for several reasons. One, they have a really nice poster, and I always like when they have a paper copy of the poster. It's kind of cheating, but uh, I like it. Uh, the second, it's from the Ford registry, and this is from the National Data Bank, and this is a in, in really nice registry created some years ago by uh, Professor Fred Wolf, who unfortunately is no, no longer with us. Fred passed this year, but what a uh, giant rock he was in rheumatology, and he's passed that on to Caleb Michaud, and he's carrying it forward as forward, the forward registry. Uh, this is, a, I think, a very interesting abstract. Everybody giggles when you say cannabinoid receptor uh, because everybody's thinking about weed and reggae music. And uh, But as we all know, there's uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of our patients who ask about this. They ask about CBD. They ask about cannabis. Uh, we don't know exactly much much what to tell them. The studies have been um, really not very convincing, at least in terms of 100 people treated with cannabis or taking cannabis doesn't seem to be very highly effective for the pain of rheumatoid arthritis. But pain and rheumatoid arthritis is incredibly important. So we are always looking for new ways to understand it and new ways to treat it. I I thought this is fascinating. They sent out questionnaires, of course, as they do in the National Data Bank to people who rheumatoid arthritis, and they give back the information. They were looking for people who admitted to using cannabis and um, who then said they either helped them or didn't help them. But then they did a genetic analysis focused looking at the uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms in the cannabinoid receptor two, which is presumably um, relevant to the mechanism of action of the cannabis. And what they found looking at um, the uh, different alleles, and they found three uh, the uh, SNPs that um, they assessed further that were associated, and these are in linkage disequilibrium, which means that you don't know which of them may be active or maybe another gene. But interestingly, they found a difference in people who said it was effective, which was 79 of the total, versus those who said it was not effective. Less steroid use in those who said it was effective. Um, More of a history of reported depression, which may have uh, influence on why they used it, but the presence of the minor allele uh, in uh, homozygote or heterozygote uh, was associated with lack of response to cannabis self-reported, but who else is going to report the pain? So I thought this was very interesting. We need to understand more about pain. These SNPs don't affect the protein for the cannabinoid receptor type 2, so it's not clear what they would do. Maybe they're in linkage disequilibrium with something else, but I I thought this was important information and really nicely done analysis.
0: I think this uh, kind of data is sorely needed. Uh, Certainly, like you said, we're in the dark on what to say about the safety and efficacy of these products in managing pain. Uh, I like that number that they reported, 59% reported that cannabis was effective. It kind of is like what my patients, in fact, say, and I believe them when they vote with their feet on things like this. But again, I'm lacking sort of real science, And but there's been a science on this for a long time. I remember uh, working with Bob Zurier on, on this a long time ago, a lot of NIH grants on both the, the effect of cannabinoids and also the receptor in as as a, as a an immunologic and, and pain intervention, So I think this. we need more research like this. I think we need to um, promote it and not be so negative about it. I think we need to watch the safety of cannabinoid-related therapies in our patients so we can adequately advise our patients. I always joke that I'm worried when my best advice comes from some guy named Paco behind a counter uh, at a dispensary. And I think we can do better than that. Paco knows. (laughs) Used to be father knows best, but yeah, now with Paco. All right, so my first one is abstract 1584. Uh, this is a plenary session, the effect of trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole prophylaxis on infections in patients with GPA who are receiving rituximab. This is a population-based study. It was based on uh, claims data from MarketScan and some other source, and they basically fa- had um, a 900, it should, 920 or so GPA patients who were treated with rituximab, and they were looking to see whether the use of prophylaxis, again, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxol, was associated with reduced rates of infection. And not just, it could be all infections, including outpatients and non-serious infections. It could be serious hospitalizable infections uh, overall, but obviously you'd be giving the GPA, I mean, the prophylaxis for prevention of PJP, and that was also another endpoint. So their patients were, were collected over a 10-year period. They had, uh, of the 919 281 received prophylaxis. Um, and, you know, the background rates of infection uh, that they saw were kind of what we see uh, in practice. Overall rates of serious infectious events was six per 100 patient years. Um, overall infections, almost 30 per 100 patient years, and PJP being much less frequent and uh, basically seven per 1,000 patient years. And they did show uh, a reduction in uh, overall infections and serious infections. The serious infection rate was dropped by 50% uh, if you were on um, this prophylaxis regimen. Uh, when they looked at all infections and outpatient, mainly outpatient infections, it was dropped by 32%. And of the overall group from 919, there were 13 cases of PJP pneumonia um, and all of them occurred in the people who were not taking prophylaxis, and none occurred in people that were on prophylaxis. Uh, not surprisingly, no effect on zoster. Uh, and I think that, that this data um, really mirrors another abstract, 1619, a Medicare data analysis by well, older people. By Thorpe et al., they looked at 15,000 people and saw that 21% of people were taking uh, prophylaxis uh, with their, uh, the initiation of immunosuppressives in GPA. Again, making the point, maybe not enough people are getting prophylaxis when they probably should. And lastly, I know we do uh, rituximab is a big risk factor here, but you wouldn't, you know, I don't think you need to use it, use it every time you use rituximab, but I wouldn't use it in RA. I don't use it in lupus. I do use it in GPA because GPA has a special risk here. They're older. They've got lung damage and damaged tissue where infections like seed. They're on steroids. They're on immunosuppressors. And again, they have this new risk factor in rituximab.
1: And what about disease activity? Do they look at the disease activity impact?
0: No, because it was claims data. They, they didn't right. have that data. I think the only one that knows how to do that with some surrogate measures is Jeff Curtis, and that wasn't done here. He wasn't an author on this, but well, actually he was. So we, we could ask Jeff whether or not he, he, I wouldn't be surprised if he started started to look at that because he, again, Jeff can piece together other bits of information that you get in claims data to come up with, whether you're you know a low activity, high activity person. So any, for uh, any other one, the 1619, they showed that you, that um, prophylaxis was more likely when you were using more aggressive immunosuppressives, presumably because you had more aggressive disease. But no one really has linked it to activity.
1: For our uh, younger viewers, there was a, a lot of buzz many years ago, decades ago now, about bactrim, trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole, being a therapy for Wegeners, and uh, presumably the relationship is between the infections in the upper airways particularly, and the fact that if you have an infection, that the T-cell superantigens can really potentiate activation of the disease. And as we know clinically, uh, it can be very hard to distinguish active Wegener's from having just a really bad uh, upper airway infection. But Bactrim had been considered even before PJP prophylaxis as a potential therapy. So I think that's another angle and certainly worth considering. I think particularly people with with uh, limited disease, it may have some benefit.
0: You know, uh, this past year, I was on a panel at, at uh, Dan First Pearson Conference in Los Angeles. Uh, with, I was on a panel with a pulmonologist and an ENT from Harvard. And when I asked this question about prophylaxis, they both said, no, we don't use it. We don't. We think it's overstated. We don't think the data supports it. I think rheumatologists consider this differently, and we I, I think we should advocate for it. The question is, for how long? You know, is it... And when, do you, or when, do you, when can you stop on that? Is, that's, that's certainly not clear from any of these studies.
1: And it's different disease to disease. I think you make a much better case for an ankyl-associated vasculitis than, say, in lupus, where I right. think it's very, very rare. Absolutely. So um, my next abstract, or, or it's actually representative of a bunch of abstracts, um, if there was a, a hot topic this year or one of the hot topics this year, uh, it would be CAR-T, So chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, which we've heard a little bit about, but boy, there is a lot of buzz going on in that. Abstract 607 was one from the uh, Georg Schetz group, Uh, and that was interesting. They looked at, they have a small number of patients. They have uh, 15 patients, eight of whom have lupus three-head myositis, four-head scleroderma, who have been followed now for more than six months uh, after CAR-T therapy. In this case, they're looking at the chimeric antigen receptor against CD19, so it's kind of like a, a super anti-CD19 therapy. Um, you got love, to gotta love Professor Shet's group. Uh, eight lupus patients, but I think they're on their 12th publication uh, about this group of patients right now. And uh, they really have looked at it in a number of ways. It's a very intensive regimen. What you do is collect, uh, um, well, first you have a conditioning regimen, which is pretty intense. It's cytoxin and fludarabine or 2-CDA. Then you collect the cells and then you uh, create the chimeric antigen receptor uh, with a great activity for CD19. And of course, you do deplete your uh, CD19 cells. as so is kind of a super uh, B cell uh, directed sort of therapy. The abstract that they presented uh, was in- very interesting in that the autoantibodies went exactly the way you would have hoped, and that is they went down, the DNA, Smith, etc. But they also looked at uh, vaccine-related uh, antibodies, which we don't want to come down. So they looked at rubella and tetanus, and actually they even looked at COVID uh, responses, autoantibody responses, and um, they seem to be maintained. So that would be uh, uh, the hope that you would really have a tremendous over-effect on auto-antibodies but uh, that may be a lesser effect on the protective antibodies that all of us need. So uh, there's a lot more coming for this. I I don't know. I still have some concerns. Um, how much effect is the conditioning regimen in, in and of itself? Uh, it's targeting CD19. We have a lot of other ways to target CD19 now. So this is very intensive and therefore is going to be expensive. Uh, but it's pretty exciting. A lot of people fired up about this.
0: Yeah, you know it's the prolonged follow-up, um, and not and those people not being on any other therapies, and they're still doing well. They're those sleet eyes of twelve, fourteen, twenty, are still zero, even though, and they're not taking immunosuppressors suppressors and steroids anymore, and that's that's amazing. But the the fact is that these are sixteen pretty famous patients in Dr. Sh- uh, Shet's clinic, and and they should be famous for what they've done. In volunteering their time and their cells and, and the study here, but will this extend to other autoimmune um, conditions? And, you know, they they have so they made mention of responses in patients with the antisynthetase syndrome and so a few other indications. So it'll be interesting to see how this does, but the good news is there's a bunch of companies that are gearing up on this right now, um, that the technology is changing, so it won't be um, a million-dollar therapy um, that it might be used more widely, and I just want, but I always want to harken back to where this stands in cancer, where it's not a, you know, a, a slam dunk in cancer. There's a lot of toxicity issues and failure issues in cancer, um, and will we enjoy better success in rheumatology than they have in oncology? I, I think we have to go into this with an open eye and a great deal of hope, and hopefully, a whole lot of science.
1: Yeah, and I think all of us know that the risk benefit ratio really different in oncology, and also the targeting. Uh, you have, uh, I think, in oncology they've used it for a number of different targets, and you can, I think, make it more of a case for a direct, like, let's get rid of all of these bad cells and have a less of an impact off target. But as you said, you got to, I think, people are excited. You got to go in with open eyes and really, um, you know, let's see where the data take us on this. Yeah. All
0: right, my next one is the uh, SMART study, another plenary session, abstract 1583, presented by Dr. Dehir um, D-H-I-R, D-H-I-R. Um, and this was a, a, a study that really impacts practice, um, and it's a study of split-dose oral methotrexate versus single-dose methotrexate given weekly to RA patients. Uh, And in this study, 253 patients, an open-label blinded assessor study, uh, patients were randomized to either split dose, which was everybody got 25 milligrams, and they quickly went from 15 up to 25, but you either got 25 once a week, uh, and everyone's on folate, or uh, 15 in the morning and 10 on the same day once a week as your split-dose regimen. Why are we doing this? We certainly know Methotrexate, at doses greater than 15 milligrams, has variable bioavailability and absorption, uh, and you really can't even predict it, such that it probably is smart that once you get to 15 milligrams that you change to parenteral to guarantee absorption. But studies done over 10 years ago showed that you can, instead of going to parenteral, you can go to split-dose oral. As long as you're taking less than six tablets, 2.5 milligram tablets um, a week, you're going to get pretty much uh, 90% absorption of that. So when I get to 15 milligrams, I'm going now, I'm splitting. Instead of six months a week, it's going to be three, twice a day, once a week. And that's what they're doing here. Everybody's on 25 milligrams for 16 weeks. In the protocol, if you weren't doing better uh, and you had a DAS greater than 3.2, you could add on sulfasalazine or hydroxychloroquine. The primary endpoint of the study was at six months or 24 weeks where they were looking at a, a ULAR good uh, response. The problem was that last eight weeks between 16- and 24 was muddied up by, you know, 35 to 55% addition of other DMARDs. So it's hard to tell, and it was no difference. But if you looked at the 16 weeks where they're just on methotrexate, split dose or single dose, clear cut, big differences. Um, the split dose oral had significantly better ACR 20s, 76 versus 52, and ACR 70, uh, ACR 50s, 50, 56 versus 35, and DAS remissions and ULAR goods, and also the split dose people were less likely to add on more therapy, only 35% compared to the single dose where 55% needed additional therapy. Again, the regimen was well tolerated. There were numerically more um, episodes of nausea, GI symptoms in CNS symptoms. It wasn't major, it wasn't statistically significant. Uh, and there was more transaminitis, and not surprising. If you give more effective delivery of the drug, you're likely to have more side effects going forward. So this is a practical reminder that we should be using split dose oral or going to parenteral. I was talking to a, one, one of our our uh, faculty uh, over the meeting. They said he goes to parenteral on every, every day to avoid any confusion. He so, finds sometimes going to that Q12, Q8 on one day, only once a week that there's a problem. And there's always that certain person who seems to be taking it twice a day every day of the week. And you, you know, you almost have a conniption over that. But so this is the way to go. I think it's a good reminder study.
1: Yeah, one of the great things about the ACR, you you get people from all over the world, and you can do a study. I think some people are very intimidated to think about. Conducting a clinical trial, but these were investigators from India. Uh, asked a very focused question, and I think got a, uh, an answer that's not necessarily surprising. We expected that based on other data, but uh, it's very nice to have very important clinical information. Um, and you know, very humble investigator who, from the from during the presentation, admitted they picked the wrong endpoint. Uh-huh. Uh, they should have picked 16 weeks because the effect does get muddied. Ethically, you have to jump in when people are not doing well at 16 weeks. You can't let them go, keep going on longer. So he he said we picked the wrong uh, the wrong endpoint for that. But uh, very nicely done study. Again, for our younger viewers, the the history uh, was that in the 70s, in the 70s, um, methotrexate, which had been discovered in the 50s and 60s, wasn't used in rheumatoid arthritis. But it was used in dermatology for psoriasis. And they found out in the 70s that one pill a day was more toxic than seven pills on one day. So that got the uh, once a week regimen. If you ever see three times a week, what that was, was uh, Q12 times three. So Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Monday morning, the dermatologist picked that really without data, but that was thought to be uh, a good idea because that's the Turnover time of the hyperproliferative keratinocyte, so that, that's where the wacky regimen, the Q twelve, and and then we said, well, once a week is simple, let's do that. But as this data show that you you can do better uh, in in terms of getting more drug uh, with the same dosing by doing this spread. So. Yeah,
0: it's, it's it's funny how we've come back around to how we began. Um, this is the beginning of our fellowship back in the eighties when we were talking about once a week versus that three doses Q12. Um, so it's kind of funny that we're almost back that, but it's got a rationale. Why not do it?
1: Yeah. Um, the uh, next poster was also a poster. It's late breaker. Oh seven L O seven. And this was the Arctic rewind study. And uh, as I said, I just, I think the poster hall is the soul of the meeting walking around talking to somebody, presenting their data, uh, just, boy, there's no substitute. And uh, this is Dr. Kurt from uh, the, uh, the Scandinavia. And um, we asked her about the name because there's several studies called Arctic Rewind. And she said, well, they were applying for a grant and th- they thought it had a better chance of success if they had two separate studies, which they did. So there's Arctic Rewind with conventional synthetic DMARDs and there's Arctic Rewind with uh, TNF inhibitor. The studies are similar enough to be confusing. And they've been published over the years. These are three-year data from the Arctic Rewind TNF taper. And um, what this was, uh, multi-center, open-label, non-inferiority uh, patients who were in stable remission for a year on TNF therapy, um, TNF inhibition, no swollen joints, and they were randomized to cut the TNF inhibitor in half, cut the dose in half. And then if they were um, still in remission uh, at four months, then to stop it. And they were followed until they flared. When they were flared, they were put uh, back on therapy. And flare was uh, a combination of the DAS going greater than 1.6, increase in DAS of of more than 0.6, more than two small joints, or if the patient just said, and the doctor agreed, I'm flaring. Um, so the it, not the giant study, but a very clean data, 99 patients randomized, 92 went forward into the study. And what they showed is that it was much better to stay on the TNF inhibitor in terms of disease control. So flare-free survival was more than 80% in the patients who stayed on their TNF inhibitor compared to about 25% in those who tapered and then stopped. Mostly stopped because this is now in 36 months. So the data, the curves are very flat, which I think is is fascinating. Uh, many people did get control again. 81% in those who had stopped the TNF again got control when they went back on it. Interestingly, um, there were people, of course, who stayed on... The treatment and did flare, maybe you know, not quite twenty percent of them, and sixty-seven percent of them also got control, getting back on the therapy. But it's the therapy that they were already on, showing the inherent variability in the disease. Um, Anything you want to look at, they did. uh, You know, the the people on the stable TNF did better, but it is interesting. Twenty-nine in terms of people who were on um, the. Uh, no treatment, you did have that group of people on no treatment, Um, 29% of those who got off drug. We don't know what the predictors are. They've tried in the past in earlier versions of ARTIC Rewind, and that's the real problem. We don't know which patients can do this, but patients love this idea. Uh, why do I need to be on therapy? They are doing the analysis now to see if they're predictors, and maybe given the fact that it's three years now and the curves are really flat, so it looks like it's very stable, we will be able to provide good data about who is it that it should possibly consider? Or maybe maybe more importantly, who should not consider this because bad things are going to happen like x-ray progression, which we saw in an earlier analysis of the same study.
0: So I'm very against any withdrawal therapy on disease. I spend most of my life trying to control with multiple drugs. I don't think it's, I think it's harder with less drugs, meaning monotherapy. I think it's impossible by going off. But as Artie has pointed out, uh, patients are going to want to do this. Um, municipalities and governments are going to want to do this due to the cost of the drugs. Um, uh, are you a physician that wants to do this? And I think it, here, what's, this is the equation you have to deal with. The risk of drug-free, disease-free remission is about 10% in RA if you're lucky. And I can't say it's really that high, but that's often quoted. This data says if you've achieved that sustained remission, and that's a really rigid definition, sustained remission for 12 months that you could be in sustained uh, remission off drug, uh, and and that's 29%. So that's 29 out of 100. Those are the odds that you present to the patient. Or it's one in 10. Would they want to take that risk? This is a big discussion about how, what risk they want to take. And I think patients want to be the per- that, that guy, that gal, who doesn't really have RA, and that's really going to go away magically. Um, and magical thinking often occurs in my clinic, just not by me. Uh, So I'm kind of against this, but I do think it's about flares. It's about the risk of flares. And the good news is that you can recapture control when they flare. That's all good, well, and fine. But don't think that flares are inconsequential. We've covered abstracts in the past about repeated flares and their long-term damage. Uh, I mean, the analogy I quickly think of is your your elderly grandmother is starting to fall you know, the more she falls, the more trouble she's going to get into. I mean, it's kind of a certainty. And I think you should think about the same about flares in RA having um, a multiple hit effect on, you know, one's well-being, if not one's, you know, immune system and or musculoskeletal, um, you know, uh, status, et cetera. So again, I think this, this research that they've published is very helpful. And it, it really helps you if you're a naysayer like me, or if you're a gun hole like someone else um in what you tell your patients.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the other take-home point like you're saying is if you do want to try it or if they want to try it, um it would seem to be good to do what they did. And that is when you flare you get right back on the treatment. If you wait, I think uh, the longer you wait and we've seen this in other studies, there's been how many two dozen tapering studies. The longer you wait, the more not only the more damage do you potentially have, but the more difficult it may be to recapture that response. So, if you are going to do it, get right back in and, and you know tell you you know the the, the patient needs to let us know as w- soon as they flare and then get back on treatment.
0: Yeah. So my next one, is, I'm going to go to flare as well, and this is abstract uh, 2480 from uh, Victoria Konzett, Dan Alataha, Joe Smolin. Um, they're doing an analysis of their patients in Vienna along with the patients from the NORD-DMARD study, that's um, 2,500 and 4,300 patients, uh, and they're looking at definitions of an RA flare. So we do clinical trials, and you, you may have seen studies where they talk about flares, and it's usually like a flare was when someone had an increase in TJC and SJC by two or more, or a flare was an increase in dash 28 by greater than 1.2, and those are often entry criteria, and they're kind of soft, and we don't know what it means. So what they did was they took the patients in, 80% of patients in the Nord-DMAR trial and asked them the question, you know, how is your disease today? Much worse, worse, um, unchanged, better, much better, and if you had a two-category change in the wrong direction, that was a flare, and then they backworked their definitions to say that the cut points for a flare is going to be an SDI, a simplified disease activity score index of 4.7, or a CDI, a clinical disease activity index of 4.5. And this is pretty dry, um, shows some spider uh, graphs um, and, and whatnot. Uh, but I think this is gigantic because I want to see studies about flares. Because what is your intervention? First off, what is your definition of flare? To me, it's an angry phone call from a patient who's got a complaint, uh, you know, uh, and, and they all get classified as flares. What is your 100% response to all flares? Steroids, injectable, um, oral, dose packs. It doesn't really. This is not science, and this is sort of bad management. So if we can define flares, then we can study flares, and we can develop treatment protocols that are maybe um, comparable, if not better and safer, than using steroids.
1: Yeah, I think I agree, super important and very nice to have these data and just have a number. Um, and as you watch the CDI scores over time, uh, you say, oh, I better pay attention to this one because this can be uh, consistent with the flare. Uh, it happened uh, at the at the posters, at his poster, saw uh, Professor Ted Pincus. And uh, he, he loves these kind of things because it's listening to the patient. It really is the patient who determines it. And um, that's who we should be listening to for that. But we also, you know, need to be cautious because there's, uh, and we've seen there's dozen abstracts on non-inflammatory pain that, uh, and in fact, that was the poster that I saw that Fred was talking about, that you can be fooled, of course, with uh, is saying that someone is in moderate or even high disease activity with no swollen joints. And of course, that's driven presumably by pain. So it's a balance. and uh, But I think having the CDI number uh, from this is really very useful to, to be able to say, you know, um, now we, we have something to say as a flare. It's not perfect, but it gives us something to aim at. Absolutely. So your next one. My next one, um, I'm going to go with uh, 2548, and this is uveitis rates in patients with x treated with bimekizumab. So um, I, I think it's, a, it's an important comorbid condition or part of the disease, depending on how you want to uh, consider it, uh, and that is uveitis, uh, acute anterior uveitis or iritis. We worry about this a lot in PSA. We worry about this a lot in ankylosing spondylitis because it can be very important um, and it can often drive treatment decisions. So how do we look at this? The problem with acute anterior uveitis is it's very heterogeneous. Uh, Many people don't ever get it. Some people get it and you treat them with steroid eye drops and it goes away and stays away for years. Other people, it's severe and recurrent, and you end up treating them either with injectable or you want to pick a biologic agent that um, is, has the demonstrated ability to be helpful in that regard. Uh, we don't have much, we don't have a lot of studies, therefore. There have been observational studies of the TNF inhibitors, which do suggest that particularly the monoclonal antibodies um, in patients with psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, uh, the TNF inhibitor monoclonal antibodies seem to decrease the numbers of flares of uveitis. It's not a controlled study. The only controlled study was in uh, a, the in case of adalimumab, the TNF inhibitor, and they didn't study acute anterior uveitis. They studied posterior or pan uveitis, uh, which are much easier to study because people are can become dependent on oral steroids and they need treatment and you can do a study. In acute anterior, uveitis is very hard, to, you'd have to do a lot of people over the years. So you get information somewhat indirectly and this looks at bimekizumab, which is of course uh, IL-17 targeted and it's constructed to block both IL-17A and IL-17F and it's being brought along for skin psoriasis where um, it, uh, it, it's also being looked at in psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. This was a, a pooled analysis from their studies in, in, in axial spondyloarthritis, yeah, the B-mobile and the agile be moving uh, studies. And what they looked at is that um, when they pooled the patients and just looked at the recurrence or the, the occurrence, I should say, of uveitis, that it did seem that it was less among all patients um, who received bimekizimab therapy. In the um, this is from the pooled phase three studies. In the uh, if they looked at patients who reported a history of uveitis, and I always like uveitis, uh, I, I think it's one of those things you can just ask people. You say, Do you ever have uveitis? And if they say "Was well, uveitis, then they didn't have it. It's like asking them if they ever had a kidney stone. They don't forget that they had uveitis. Right. Um, and here, if you ask them if they had uveitis, it's separated out even more. So the uveitis rate recurrence rate seemed to be less with active treatment with bimekizumab compared to placebo in these studies. In the uh, pooled phase 2 and 3 um studies they had so little data and that's a risk is you don't have enough you don't have enough events you can't really see much of anything. Um so it's kind of suggestive of that, but these are the only data that we have. That are positive for anything um, other than a TNF inhibitor. Other than there's some data for methotrexate, some data for microphenolate as well. But I think uh, on that basis that the, these are important, and I think this um, the, is is supported um, by a study with a TNF inhibitor, and that is uh, abstract uh, 524, which. Very similarly, this one with serilizumab, TNF inhibitor. So uh, we would anticipate that it might be useful. Um, And it does seem to in the same sort of a study. So we can't study these directly. There's just not enough regular occurrence. It's too sporadic, but these are suggestive. And I think this is informative for patients with spa family of diseases, including psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. Uh,
0: another one that piles onto this is abstract 2550, which was a meta-analysis, I think, of uh, published studies in all the therapies and really just saying what uh, Artie just said, that it's really strong or it looks better for the TNF inhibitors. But Artie, this um, dual inhibitor, um, this seems to be somewhat different than what, what's what been talked about with the other IL-17s, um, that not that uh where you can probably give it they just and and they'll they'll it's safe maybe it's safe to give but you wonder whether or not it may be a a detrimental thing using IL17 uh, and I'm not sure that that's been very clear until this particular analysis
1: yeah um IL17s you know he, it really harkens back to the TNF days, when you had the soluble receptor, which blocked TNF-alpha and TNF-beta, or lymphotoxin-alpha, and the monoclonal antibodies, which are specific for TNF. Are they going to be same? Are they going to be different? Years later, I think there's dose differences, but I think mechanistically, they're more similar than they're different. Although, as I said, in uveitis, uh, the data with the TAN receptor are less robust than they are with the monoclonal antibodies, including certolizumab. Is that a dose thing? We know that the in skin psoriasis, double the dose of etanercept works better than the typical dose that we use. Now we have the 17s, the two agents we have, um, and, the, and then and the, then there are IL-17A inhibitors. Now we have an A-F inhibitor, uh, and there's a number coming along that uh, either block A or block both. And we'll have to see. Uh, is it better? And the flip side of better is, is it as well tolerated? Um, and we really look forward to the studies that address that specifically.
0: Yeah, I again, with the new Me2 and Me3 drugs coming in, it's hard to prove they're better. Um, but if you can find a little edge where they might have a little safety advantage, that might be something interesting going forward. So uh, time will tell. Um, yeah. My next one is going to be, um, what do I have down? I have down here. Uh I think this, this oh I missed I, I went by this uh this one on um where it is oh my goodness on, on PR3 in um in staining of uh, lupus biopsies it's abstract 2427 from Celia et al. and includes Michelle Petrie's group. This is a result of the accelerated medicines AMP program where they're investing in high science for um, better understanding of diseases. And in this study, it was a, 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 an analysis of uh, many different things. But what they found in um, looking at 11, uh, sorry, 13 patients or 11, something like that, I think it's actually, it's 11 lupus biopsies, um, that PR3 staining um, was impressive and uh, suggested, you know, a degranulation of neutrophils uh, that are adding to um, the damage and histologic findings that are seen in lupus. So in these uh, 11 biopsies, five were membranous and um, uh, it was six or eight that were proliferative. And the PR3 staining, when they showed the immunohistochemical staining looked like um, you know a really bright night with the stars out. I mean, it was just, boom, it really hits you with all this staining. And when they looked at it a little more clearly or closely, They found that, A, most of the staining was seen in proliferative GN and not in in the membranous patients. And secondly, within the proliferative GN uh, patients, it was mainly from within the glomerulus is where they were getting most of the staining rather than in the interstitium. They showed that this was correlated with activity and not chronicity. They showed that you could measure PR3 in the urine and that it would correlate, with again, with the, the histology that was being seen. So this uh, study, one is a new finding, speaks to the pathology and the histology that we see in lupus, maybe affording us a new biomarker. We've covered in the past that, that maybe the future, I think the future has got to be um, urinary biomarkers in lupus and stop relying so much on proteinuria and complement levels as our endpoints when they've been shown to be notoriously, unre- notoriously unreliable so PR3 can now be added to IL16 and CD63 and CD206 and a few others that as, as things that could be could be made commercially available could tell us better how we're doing in managing uh lupus nephritis patients.
1: Yeah, that's great and a big unmet need. As you said, we we're looking at the same biomarkers that 30 years ago we didn't like and now we're still measuring them, you know, C3 C4 and um, they're not doing it necessarily, and uh, so there's great promise in new biomarkers, and and uh, you know that'd be that'd be very helpful to manage patients. It's it's easy when they flare and they're doing incredibly badly. It's easy when they're absolutely asymptomatic. But in that in between, my gosh, we certainly could use some help looking at uh, objective ways to assess disease activity. Mm-hmm. All right. So my next is abstract 445, uh, tocilizumab biosimilar for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh And it's interesting, I, I put this because the ACR meeting is international and uh, you get very different uh, 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 attention or very different consideration of uh, certain concepts across countries. The abstract, you just uh, presented, everybody's going to love that. Everybody's going to be the same, probably around the world, because we all want biomarkers that help us assess lupus ac- disease activity. Biosimilars is a topic that is incredibly different around the world. This abstract, uh, if you uh were we we're, were looking for it to be exciting, it's absolutely not exciting at all. And that's boring is really good for biosimilar uh um abstracts. You want a boring abstract, which means that. Your biosimilar is has the same pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics as the originator, and that it has the same clinical data and that's what we've seen here. You can't hardly see the different curves between the originator and the biosimilar and that that's what you would have wanted and would have hoped for. The reason I think it's worth discussing though is twofold one is. There's others. There's a biosimilar of ustekinumab that's been approved, and there's a biosimilar that I'm, I don't know if it's coming or it's already approved of denosumab. Um And I guess the, the, the question is when we when we cover biosimilars originally. Uh, It was exciting, and the data were boring but important. Um, Now, in countries around the world, they've had a a dramatic impact on access and cost, which means that that has a big impact on the treatment algorithm. You're not going to get anything before a TNF inhibitor if the TNF inhibitor costs 10% of the other biologic. Well, is this entering us into a new era then when other mechanisms of action um, will also have that same access promise and what will that do to our treatment algorithm approaches? We have colleagues that we spoke to from Japan, from UK, from Europe, from South America. Um, the U.S. is is unfortunately way behind in terms of the uptake of biosimilars because of um, the issues that the the patients don't get a, a benefit from it. The PBMs still like the drug expensive. But these things, it's, it's got to be coming sometime, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it it definitely gets attention for a lot of the reasons you just said. Um, uh, When I looked at, I think, two months ago uh, in the United States, the FDA has approved 40 biosimilars, and half of those are in rheumatology. So this is getting the attention of rheumatologists, especially with the introduction of nine new biosimilars for uh, adalimumab in 2023. Now we, uh, we're, we're, now we have an IL-6 and as you say, the 1223 and, uh, and three rituximabs and four, I mean, the idea is that there's so many, it's gonna be in play. And, and, and again, I think that we still feel like we're not in control in the United States, that, that whether a biosimilar gets used is made outside of our decision-making and is often made by institutions or managed care, but with the dominance of these numbers that are coming up, this is going to affect the market. And will cheaper biosimilars, um, you know, that are going to be, instead of $60,000 a year, will be less than $7,000 a year, will that allow for greater use? Would you, the prescriber, be more likely to go in this direction if you knew that more of your patients could be on this? And, yeah, the good news is that it it, it is a little bit like kissing your sister when it comes to looking at the data. It's totally, is that, was that an appropriate, sh- should I? I have to stop saying things I'm thinking.
1: Kiss your sister, kiss your
0: brother. It's all good. It's all good. That's absolutely right. We're that kind of kind of discipline in rheumatology. But I, the idea is, it's boring. The, the, the lines overlap. The safety is exactly the same. The administration is the same. So again, I think that the rheumatologists are more um, interested in engaging um, on this topic, and uh, and I think that we want we do want to see more. So yep. this is encouraging. Yeah all right my um next one has to do with uh your last trip to the emergency room actually not your last trip your patient's last trip to the emergency room this is abstract uh 1005 uh it was a good poster um that i wandered by and i I made a you know a smart aleck comment and um uh, the, the 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 person who uh was doing the the poster uh Piana rosa um, challenged me on it. I thought it was interesting. This is a uh, there are a few posters on rheumatology patients going to the emergency room uh, coming out of Canada, uh, led by Cheryl Barnaby and others. Uh, this one was an analysis of just model enhancements that are needed. The title is Identifying uh, Inflammatory Arthritis amb- Ambulatory Care uh, ser- uh, Service Model Enhancements Are Needed to Avoid uh, Emergency Department Visits. Um, And what they did was they studied uh, inflammatory arthritis patients going to the emergency room in roughly a six-year period in uh, roughly about a year ago. They identified 82 patients, uh, 48% were RA, and then the rest were PSA, SPA, uh, 34% were um, gout. Um, Age 16 to 55, half women, 50% urban, 50% uh, rural. So that's kind of across the board. The question is why did they go to the emergency room? And 37% went for an arthritis flare or a specific musculoskeletal complaint. And then the rest, you know, 15% chest pain uh, or 12% injury or 11% infection. But the idea is that almost 30% of them went directly to the emergency room as as opposed to calling their rheumatologist. Uh, and that a third of them needed to have a return visit. And then a third of the overall number had their problem resolved after that ER visit with or without the ambulatory care provider. But the point here was that a lot of patients are going to the emergency room, and of the arthritis flare patients, almost 20% of them went to the ER because they couldn't get into their rheumatologist. Uh, So access to their rheumatologist was complicated, or because um, their problem that they had addressed with their rheumatologist was either worse or unresolved. Um, And, you know, I was doing a survey. a search for young rheumatologists that are in, on Twitter and seeing you know, who's out there doing what. And I just put in the word rheumatology in a Twitter search and oh my God, Twitter was killing rheumatology and rheumatologists for being unable to get an appointment. My doc couldn't get me in, I gotta get it. So this is a major problem. And the emergency room, as you know, is not the solution to the problem. So I thought this was important as a as it is a call to action for teaching the patients that you do have what to do when they get into trouble, um, and how to manage it. Uh, and secondly, I mean my job was to keep my patients out of the emergency room and out of the hospital I think we all feel the same
1: way. So the, the, what do they call it in Canada is is it the emergency room emergency department or do they use that British, E right and. M- Ambulance, and emergency, or something. I, uh, I watch, I see that on a lot of the British cop shows in the
0: it, or I like in the Caribbean and St. Vincent and Grenada where, where I train, they call it casualty. casualty. I like went down to casualty and <laughs> and they wrapped them up or they gave them a, a, some kind of salve and uh and a wrap. You
1: know, I, it doesn't sound like you're expecting a recovery if they're like, you no, know, just casualty. casualty, right? Right? Well, I'm no. gonna do one quick one and maybe there's yeah. time for you, you do a quick one and. My quick one is actually a, a, a quick two, but I'm so I'm cheating. Um, I'm looking at LO3, but I'm also going to throw in um, a shout out to 1125, and they deal with VEXIS. And I think this is another thing that really highlights that the ACR being a big international meeting. Um, LO3 looked at the uh, efficacy and safety of therapies in VEXIS and the French nationwide VEXIS group, and VEXIS is, of course, that. Uh, monogenic uh, inflammatory disease, almost all men uh, because it's X-linked with a variety of bone marrow and systemic symptoms. Anyway, they had 110 patients, um, 99% uh, men, and they were were treated according to the local doctor. So it's not a a trial by any means. Uh, The constitutional symptoms, almost everybody skin lesions arthralgia myelodysplastic syndrome and lab abnormalities the bottom line for this study and again this is L um uh, the, the the it's a it was a late breaker LO3 was that the jack inhibitors seemed to be uh preferred they seemed to do better in terms of survival on drugs, so they don't have they didn't have a lot of data on actual outcomes of that um, there there was another abstract as I said this one the um, abstract eleven twenty five which was from Spain nationwide again in Spain they looked just at the clinical profiles of vexus uh, and their constitutional symptoms eighty two percent Eight fever 80%, arthritis, 80%, and then lesser manifestations, though 90% for skin, and then a variety of uh hematologic abnormalities with uh, anemia, um, and some uh thrombocytopenia. So it's an uncommon syndrome. We happen to have one patient that uh did not have the genetic profile. I should say abstract LO1 also looked at genetics and uh some interesting. Other abnormalities besides the classic ones in the UBA1 gene that have been described. So, really cool in rheumatology, have new diseases. And, um, you know, pretty soon, because of uh, really a lot of people investigating, you find out the etiology of it, then the clinical characteristics. And now we're even on to uh, really good assessments of uh, treatment. You
0: know, this is a modern day success story. I mean, this. Was identified, I, I think, two years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. And you know, Marcy Ferrada at the NIH, along with other investigators around the country, came up with this, uh, and have and, and now you see at the meeting, there's a whole bunch of vexus abstracts. And now it's better characterization, knowing what populations to look in, knowing what the interventions can be. I mean, this is sort of an amazing story that um, any one of us would like to tell when talking about you know recent advances in in rheumatology. Um, I'm gonna end with uh an ILD uh rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. There was a ton of stuff, and Artie and I could do another hour on this alone. I'm gonna enter uh, end with what I think is a, a very straightforward, nice analysis by um uh uh Jeff Spark's group. It was abstract, uh 1269. McDermott was the lead author. Uh great to talk to at the at the uh poster. Uh, they have 208 patients in two core health cohorts uh, at the uh, Brigham and uh, part of the Brass Registry as well who have ILD, and they characterize their patients. Bottom line, the takeaway is the 3S rule. If you want to uh, identify patients at risk for or who are going to have ILD, in RA, it's sex, serostatus, and smoking. Males are at greater risk. Being seropositive, RF or CCP, much greater risk. And then being a smoker, uh, uh, current and past, much greater risk. So having three S's, the odds ratios go up significantly for having um, uh, ILD, but even more, like sevenfold or more, uh, for having the UIP pattern of ILD amongst RA patients. And the UIP pattern being the most common pattern in RA that distinguishes it from ILD and many of the other diseases that we see ILD. So, I like this as a teaching point. I like this as a a nice screening tool for when you see your patients to know maybe who you should be doing more imaging on.
1: yeah, as you said ILD what a what an incredibly hot topic uh, a number of posters on that and a presentation on the uh, the ACR treatment reg- recommendations across diseases with ILD which Honestly, it was not quite as satisfying and all diseases pretty much had the same. Um, the the people who were uh, big into this noted that there were some inconsistencies in that. Uh, it is important. I, I particularly like that, you know, there's some novel ways of looking at it to say, is it all just UIP or NSIP? Is there other ways to look at it that have implications in terms of uh, how we diagnose it, um, how we intervene, and also the the patient outcomes?
0: You know, I think we have to get better at identifying these patients and the subtypes to get better at the treatment. Because right now, we're not great at identifying this until it's like too late. And we're certainly not in the know when it comes to what is our best treatment intervention. there's a lot of anecdotalism that is really uh, not very encouraging. So uh, I want to thank our audience for tuning in for yet another year of Rheumatology Roundup. Party when we next get together it's going to be Ular in June eleven in where
1: in Vienna yeah, so, uh, yeah exactly. we'll before we say how Peter saying I will say um, many people came up to both Jack and I asking if we were going to do round. And it's been it's been a couple of years. Uh, uh, The ACR kind of decided they had enough of our shtick um, and we haven't done it for a couple of years, but they really don't even have it now. So um, we we love that people liked it. If you want to tell the ACR that we wouldn't we wouldn't object at all. And uh, speaking of meetings, um, I want to give a shout out. There's a rheumatology winter clinical symposium in Maui in February. And also Room Now Live. Room Now Live at the end of January in Dallas. And the first five people who remember Rheumatology Roundup and come to Room Now Live get a shirt with Jack Cush's picture on it. Oh this, my one, God. this is a, a, an authentic cushyism. Um, the first five people who mentioned that they saw Rheumatology Roundup t- to us at Room Now Live get a shirt with Jack on it. The Room Now Live is
0: January 27-28. It is Going to be live in Dallas and also hybrid, and for you virtual folks, uh, same for RWCS. What are the dates already in? In, Ford, in
1: February fourteenth to seventeenth.
0: Two great meetings. We know we go. Thanks everyone. Take care.